After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. If you turn over the page to chapter 20, page 292, I'm going to start reading from verse 1 to 17 and then flip towards the end of the chapter at verse 35. So from verse 1 of 20. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied, you are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why should he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast and I'm supposed to dine with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said, if I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said, let's go out into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan, Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed towards you, will I not, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So David made a covenant with the house of da Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan made David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Continuing from verse 35. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan then called out after him, isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing about all this, only Jonathan and David knew. 
Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go, carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to the town. Well, we're continuing our series today on the life of David. Why are we doing this? Three reasons. Firstly, if you want to understand the Bible, you need to understand and know King David. He is a key central figure all the way through. If you, secondly, if you want to understand yourself, your own spiritual reality, your spiritual walk, you need to know David because David gives us the most candid and honest portrait of the spiritual life of a believer in his Psalms. Uh, and thirdly, if you want to know Jesus Christ, you need David. Why? Because David is chosen by God to save his people from their enemies and lead them into peace and prosperity. He's a king specially anointed for the task, meaning he is a Christ, a Christ figure. He's the only person in the Old Testament described as a man after God's own heart, and yet we discover that even this best of men is deeply flawed. So in David, we see what true nobility and true virtue look like. We see the kind of qualities that we really want in national leaders, but we also see the dark flaws even in the best of people. And that makes us wish and yearn for someone better, a greater king. And that person is Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of the hopes of the ages. You know, David was from Bethlehem. Guess where Jesus was born? There's going to be a Christmas carol we'll all be singing in a few weeks' time. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. And it has this line, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in you tonight. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in you tonight. Now today we're looking at David and Jonathan. You've just read um, a lot of the story. It's a wonderful part of David's life. It's famous for being a great friendship. Jonathan is often held up as a model friend. In fact, two years ago I preached a sermon on Jonathan and I went on and on about how great a friend he was. And he is. But I've realized this week that we learn a lot more than just friendship. The main point of Jonathan is actually that he is the model follower. He's a model follower. So Jonathan is a beautiful picture of what it means to be a follower of God's king. In other words, a disciple. This passage is going to illuminate for us a great paradox of the Christian life. Are you ready to hear this? If you want to find yourself, you have to lose yourself first. If you want to find yourself, you have to lose yourself first. The way to live is by dying. And Jonathan is our example in this. And this is so vital for us to understand because nothing uh, it could be more countercultural than this. It is getting harder and harder to be a true Christian in our culture because our culture says that the highest goal in life is human flourishing. 
the highest goal in life. There's no greater goal in life, there's no higher allegiance than your personal flourishing. But what we learn today is the absolute opposite of that. And it's this, if the highest goal in your life is your own flourishing, then you will get smaller and smaller and diminished and end up with nothing like King Saul. But if the highest goal in your life is the glory of Jesus Christ, and you lose everything for him or are prepared to, then you will grow and grow into a truly great person and end up with everything. That's what Jonathan teaches us. Jesus himself put it in these words. Whoever wants to be my disciple, my follower, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their own soul? Jonathan shows us three steps, three indispensable steps on the road to following the king. They are the ABCs. You ready? Firstly, abdicate. Secondly, befriend. Thirdly, confess. Jonathan abdicates. He befriends. And he confesses the king. Firstly, abdication. Turn back, would you please, to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Uh, it's on page 290. And here we, we see the aftermath of the great victory over, the, over Goliath. Goliath, you might recall, was a man monster. And he was a, a, a terrifying threat because he, he issued a challenge. A one-on-one -on -one combat. And whoever was the winner would take it all and the other person's nation would become slaves. So the Israelites were absolutely terrified of this. They were quaking. Nobody could fight Goliath. Nobody could beat him. He was a giant of a man. And, De and yet David, this young, untested shepherd boy, probably a 17-year-old, accomplished this defeat single-handedly. He took down Goliath with a sling and a stone. But the text made it clear that the real reason that David triumphed was that God the Lord was with him. And now we see how Jonathan responded to David's success. Look at chapter 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. Verse 3, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Verse 1, he became one in spirit. Now, this, the Hebrew language behind this literally says something like this. The soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David. It even could be like language of knitting. The soul of Jonathan was knit, knit together with the soul of David. It says he loved this guy, David, a younger man as much as he loved himself. And so in verse 3, Jonathan makes a covenant. Now, we're going to come back to this in a bit. But for now, I want you just to notice that a covenant is a formal commitment, a formal, legally binding commitment, not a merely emotional commitment. And then, as a sign of the covenant, Jonathan takes off his robe, his royal robe, and he gives it to David, and he takes his, gives him his tunic and his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, what is going on here? We have to see that something profound is happening. Jonathan does not give David his robe because David is a bit chilly. 
He doesn't give him his sword because he thinks it's time for an upgrade to the sling. This is not a matter of new best friends forever sharing their stuff. It is an abdication. Jonathan was the eldest son of Saul. He's the crown prince. He's first in line to the throne. And here he abdicates. He gives his royal robe. He gives his armor. He gives his sword, his bow and his belt. His belt is to put the sword in. Abdication. It's absolutely stunning. Now, 20th of January, 1936. Some of you may remember that. King Edward, Edward VIII was made king of the United Kingdom and its dominions and the emperor of India. On 11th of December the same year, he abdicated. He spoke to a stunned nation in a radio broadcast and he announced that he had abdicated the throne in favor of his brother so as to be free to marry the woman he loved, Mrs. Wallace Simpson. This kind of thing makes history. It was the climax of a constitutional crisis that rocked this country. He did it for love. And this is what Jonathan is doing. He is saying to David, I can see that you are God's chosen king and I gladly surrender my claim to the throne. Now, if you think about it, that is an extraordinary thing for any human being to do, isn't it? Imagine a prince giving someone his crown, his robe, his sword, his scepter. Jonathan gives all his royal paraphernalia to David because he recognizes that David will be the next king, not him. He sees that David is going to be the savior of God's people, not him. He sees that David is the Messiah, the Christ, not him. So he gladly gives way. Later on in the book, in chapter 23, verse 17, Jonathan actually says this, Don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. I will be second. I will follow. Huh. See, Jonathan is not just teaching us how to be a good friend. He's showing us how to be a good follower. Because if you want to become a Christian, this is what it means. You have to abdicate. Like Jonathan, we have to give up our pretended rights to reign over our own lives, to be our own Lord and Master. Like Jonathan, we are to, to acclaim God's King as our King. We are to bind our future to his, to knit our soul to him. We're to give up the control to him. We are to say, John the Baptist said this, he, Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. We are to let Jesus Christ be the Lord of all of us or not at all. You can't have him as your savior if he's not your king. That's what it means to be a Christian. Those of you who are thinking about Christianity, you need to realize first thing we do, the A in the ABC is give up our claims to sovereignty and let Jesus rule us. So let me ask, have you yet surrendered the control of your life to Jesus Christ? Or are you still trying to rule? Jonathan abdicates. But Christianity is not about brute power 
and mute submission. It is fundamentally about love. So the second thing we learn is that Jonathan befriends. He befriends his future king. It's not just mere submission and bowing the knee, although it is that, but there is a great life-changing love here that flows between these two men. Look again at chapter 18, verse 1. Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. This is friendship as it's, at its most profound. It's not merely emotional. They're not dependent on one another, but it's true friendship, deep, deep appreciation and love. And if you turn over the page to chapter 20, verse 41, this poignant scene where the, the two men part, look at how they respond. They know they're probably not going to see each other again, and this is how, how it feels. David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Now look, these two are not members of a millennial boy band who just cry over anything, okay? These are seasoned warriors. These guys know what it is to take a sword in their hand, go up against some tough Philistines and slaughter them. I mean, these are tough hard warriors and yet they weep such is their love for one another they have each other's heart Jonathan was a great friend now as we think about David and Jonathan and their friendship let me just ask you another question what kind of a friend are you what kind of a friend are you are you a true friend how do you feel when your friend is slimmer more attractive or gets more attention than you? How do you feel when your friend has more money? How do you feel when your friend becomes more successful, conspicuously, he or she has a bigger salary, a better job, higher status? How do you feel when your friend is more talented? How do you feel when your friend gets the dream house, gets married, has a baby? Your friend's exam results were really good. How do you feel? Can you celebrate for them? Be happy for them? Or are you dying inside? Are you a true friend? What about when a friend disappoints you or hurts you deeply? When a friend is pretty neglectful, maybe they're too busy, and you feel like you're the one who's always chasing. Your friend confronts you about something that you didn't want to hear from them. Or when your friend offends you, what kind of a friend are you? You know, we all want true friends, but I wonder if we're committed to being true friends. Look at Jonathan. Just think about what he had. He was royalty. Talk about status. He was the crown prince. Inheritance. He, he had the riches of a kingdom to look forward to. Fame and glory. Earlier on in the book, Jonathan was the big hero. He went up against an outpost with just one other guy and won an amazing victory. Talented. He was a gifted warrior and a leader. He was going to be king one day. And then along comes David. <laughs> He's probably 27 years younger, something like that. And it all slips away. David is very handsome. David quickly becomes more famous. He eclipses Jonathan. He wins this epic victory over Goliath. And Jonathan's heroism is quickly forgotten. Nobody's singing songs about Jonathan anymore. David is then chosen by God to be king. That means the end of Saul's line, Jonathan has lost out. 
Now, how would you feel if such a person just waltzed into your life? There are two kinds of reaction. They're neatly illustrated by Saul, the king, and Jonathan, his son. Last week, we thought about Saul. He was consumed by jealousy and envy. David made him deeply insecure. He was full of fear. He was jealous. He was furious. He was paranoid. This other person's greatness, this other person's success threatened him, threatened everything about him. But Jonathan also sees the greatness of David, and he will lose too. He sees that this is God's chosen king. He knows this is the end of his own personal ambition, and he loves David as much as he loves himself. He acknowledges David as king. He abdicates. David, you will be leader. You will be the great one. Uh, you will increase. I will decrease. And I've got your back. And he is true to this. As the story unfolds, Saul becomes more and more angry and paranoid about David, and he wants him dead. But Jonathan is loyal. And interestingly, Jonathan has to be loyal to both of them. David is being forced to walk this ethical tightrope. On the one hand, Saul is still the lawful king. David mustn't commit treason or provoke some kind of direct conflict. On the other hand, he fears for his life. Saul is walking around with a spear and occasionally he just loses it and throws it at people. And Jonathan's right in the middle of these two, caught between his father and his best friend. Just think how he could have responded. He could have been, he could have been jealous of David. He could have tried to manipulate the situation to get rid of David and secure power for himself. Or he could have just given in to fear. He could have said, look, I want to, I, I want to support you, David, but my father is too powerful. I can't help you. I've got to think of myself and my family. But he does neither. He chooses this third way. He walks the tightrope of honoring the king, Saul, and protecting David. And it comes to a head in, in chapter 20. Now, this is a very long chapter, and we didn't have time to read all of it. But basically, David and Jonathan have this conversation. And David's saying, look, your father wants me dead. And Jonathan, at this point, can't believe it. He says, no, no, I'm sure he wouldn't do that. He's, he's made a promise after all. And he, he, he says, look, it, it can't be that bad. Look, so they, they create this plan. There's a feast, a monthly feast called the New Moon Festival. And everyone's supposed to be there at Saul's court. And so they say, well, look, David's going to go and hide in the fields, and we'll see how Saul reacts when he isn't there. And if he sort of takes it on board and is okay, then we'll think, all right, maybe the coast is clear. But if Saul really loses it, then we know he's got it in for David. And you see, David knows what's going to happen, but he has to prove his innocence. He has to show that he's completely above board, or he will have broken his promises to Jonathan. So Jonathan goes into bat for David, and he's at the feast and it's a little bit like a scene from uh, The Godfather, anyone who's seen that, that great film. You've got the mafia boss, kind of menacing, and it's all underplayed. And Jonathan's there, and he's sort of creeping around thinking, I've, I don't know what's going to happen next. And then he sides with David against the most powerful man in the country, his own father. And Saul becomes enraged and throws the spear again, this time at his own son. So Jonathan makes the excuse and goes out to the field to warn David with a pre-agreed signal. And he says, it isn't safe, you've got to leave. And the two friends then meet for the final time and weep. They don't know if they'll ever see each other again. But it says, David weeps the most. I wonder why. Perhaps because he knows now how excellent his friend is. 
and what pain he's caused him. David goes free, but Jonathan goes back, back to the city, back to cover for him, back to danger. What a friend. Not much more is heard about Jonathan. He was loyal to the crown. He stood by his father in battle, and there he fell at his father's side. And when David heard that, he was filled with grief, and he wrote these words. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. Jonathan, the crown prince who abdicated and befriended David. Not only abdicated, but made friends. You see, the, co the secret of Jonathan's character was that there was something bigger than his name. There was something bigger than his glory, his potential, his flourishing. It was this, the name and the glory and the fame of God. And he knew that David would bring that. And knowing God meant that Jonathan could walk away from greatness because he already had the living God. What more did he need? What about you? What keeps you from true friendship? Do you find that friendship really is about fulfilling your own needs? Maybe this is happening if you feel constantly insecure about friends, if you're oversensitive to criticism, if you're easily offended by them, if you're highly critical of them, they're always letting you down, or if your conversations are always about you. Such friendships are destined to fail. But a friendship like that of David and Jonathan stays true through thick and thin. And this is the wonderful thing about the Christian faith. We confess that Jesus is Lord and King. Yet what does this Lord and King say to us? Here he is in John chapter 15. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command, I no longer call you servants, says Jesus, because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus Christ calls you a friend. Jonathan abdicated. He befriended. He loved David with all his heart. And therefore, the third step in the ABC is really quite natural. And it's that he confesses. And I say confess in the sense of declaring your allegiance to someone, declaring your loyalty, professing that you're on their side. He goes public and he says, I'm with David. Let me pick up the story in 1 Samuel 20 again. And I'll just read these few verses. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. And then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill 
David. See, Jonathan was trying to do the right thing by everyone, but at the end of the day, he had to declare his loyalty to David. He confessed David in the, in the, the heat of the moment, in the place of great danger. He confessed David. He sided with God's king. So what about us? Do we confess Jesus as Lord? Once we get out of Sunday morning and we're out of church, out in the real world, we're at home or at work or among our friends or socializing, do we confess Jesus is our Lord? I don't mean the kind of forced, awkward way that sometimes Christians have of, of introducing Jesus into a conversation where there was no way it was ever going to get there. But I do mean being honest and upfront about the fact that you follow Jesus, that he is your Lord and King. And that's why you are who you are. That's why you make the priorities that you make. Because you're a son or a daughter of Jesus. When somebody asks you tomorrow, what did you do at the weekend? Will you tell them that you went to church? For someone here, that may be a big step. But it's one you have to take if you're going to confess Jesus as Lord. You have to risk the cold shoulder, risk the awkwardness. Julian Hardiman's a pastor in uh, Cambridge. And he talks about a dinner party he went to in Cambridge where he and his wife were with a number of other people. And the person on his left-hand side introduced themselves and asked him what he did. And he told them he was a minister of a church. And they immediately stopped the conversation, turned their back, and began to talk to the person on the other side. Oh, he thought, that was a bit awkward. So he turned to the person on his right. And the same thing happened again. So that was a long dinner party. Do you know what? If, if risking awkwardness is the worst thing that happens to us, we are very lucky indeed. There are some people in this room for whom confessing Jesus as Lord means they would lose their family. Maybe one or two of you have. We have baptized a woman in this church a number of years ago who, once baptized, knew that she had lost her family and the entire network of relationships she had grown up with. There are others here who, following Jesus and going back to your home country, will have implications, won't it? With your family, with the ruling party of your country, perhaps for your occupation, your career. Perhaps it will impact whether you will be able to get married or not. I'm not minimizing this. We have to say it as it is. If we're going to abdicate and let Jesus rule, if we're going to befriend him and love him, then we need to confess him, don't we? In front of a watching world, whatever that costs. So will you go public? If not, what is your excuse? Now, what does all this add up to? It's not just about being a great friend, is it? It's about being a great follower. Jonathan is showing us how to be a Christian. Someone who abdicates and lets Jesus rule. Someone who befriends and loves Jesus. Someone who confesses and goes public about being a follower of Jesus Christ. And the interesting thing about this is that it is all built on something called 
a covenant. Did you notice that language? It kept coming up. Uh, back in chapter 18, Jonathan, the first thing he does, you know, he loves David, and it says he made a covenant with him because he loved him as himself. And then over in chapter 20, they keep talking about the covenant that they've made. What is this covenant? Now, in the ancient world, a covenant was a formal bond that gives order and permanence to a love relationship. Let me say it again. It's a formal bond that gives order and permanence to a love relationship. A covenant is a legal contract. It's a legal arrangement, but it's not merely legal. It proceeds from love and it gives structure to love. And the, the, the greatest example we have in our contemporary world is the covenant of marriage. Marriage, hopefully, springs from love. But marriage is not merely saying, I love you. It's saying, I'm committed to you till death do us part. That is a binding legal arrangement. So a covenant creates a relationship that is far more intimate and loving than one that is simply legal. But it's also far more binding and enduring than one that is merely emotional. Now, what has this covenant stuff got to do with being a Christian? Everything. Because God relates to people through covenants. God relates to his people through covenants all the way through the Bible. When, God, when Noah comes out of the ark and starts a new humanity and a new world, God makes a covenant with Noah. And the sign of it is the rainbow. When Abraham hears the voice of God and is called to leave everything and follow and go, go, go to the land that God will show him, God makes a binding covenant with Abraham. When Israel is rescued from Egypt, from slavery, and led through the Red Sea and brought to Mount Sinai where God gives them his law, God makes a covenant with them through Moses, the Mosaic covenant. And finally, and most gloriously, Jesus Christ comes to bring a new covenant, What's new about it? In this new covenant, God sends the Holy Spirit to live in you, to dwell in your heart, to give you a new heart and a new mind. God the Holy Spirit takes away your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh that wants to love God and keep his commandments and obey him. We are covenant people if we belong to Jesus. Now there's a crucial detail of covenants that's often easily overlooked. Um, it's partly because of the language that's used. In the, uh, the, the original language of, of, of chapter 18, it says Jonathan cut a covenant with David. Now, in our version, it says made. But the Hebrew says cut. Covenants are made with the language of cutting. Why? Because covenants involved making a promise that involved death. It's most clearly seen in the covenant with Abraham. Abraham. God makes the covenant with Abraham, the promise. And Abraham has to cut some animals in half and someone's got to walk between them. And walking between these slaughtered parts of animals, which is really gruesome, is a, is a simple visual way of saying, may it be to me like this if I break the terms of this covenant. Cutting a covenant was a solemn thing, a serious thing, something you would never break. If I fail to keep the terms, may this happen to me. You see how committing it is. Now, the amazing thing about God's covenant with Abraham is that Abraham doesn't walk between the pieces. God does. Now to us. The new covenant. The one that Jesus made. 
the one that he brings us into. Who has taken the curse of breaking the covenant upon themselves? Jesus, our King, at the cross. And he did all of this in context of stripping himself of rank and dignity, setting aside his throne, being found in likeness as a human, humbling himself to death, even death on a cross. And at that cross, crying out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. You know, the night before he was crucified, before he was betrayed, Jesus had a last meal with his friends, a last supper. He broke bread and he drank wine one last time. And he said, as he poured out the wine, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of of sins. That's what we're going to remember in a few moments with uh, bread and wine. As we remember Jesus, our King, who took the curse of the covenant upon himself. So three questions for you as we go into uh, one more song. Have we abdicated? Who is on the throne of your life? Have we befriended? Who has your heart? And have we confessed? Will you say, I belong to Jesus in loyalty, although it may cost you? Don't you think he's worth it? Let's pray.